Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up, turn them on. Matthew chapter 10, what you just heard read, that's where we're going to be camping out. Last week, we looked at what we call Jesus's framework for ministry. And this week, we're going to look at Jesus's strategy for ministry. So kind of think of a framework as the tools and the strategy is how you use those tools well. So here's a picture of, of what I mean. Uh, when we lived in Oxford, Mississippi, uh, we lived on a little, a little bit of land, and my kids kept asking me for a treehouse. They wanted me to build a treehouse, which was problematic because I am not what you call handy. And one day, uh, a friend of mine actually gave me a bunch of wood, and I feel like, all right, God's clearly telling me I need to build a treehouse. And I'll, I went on YouTube, and I, I figured out a plan. I figured out what kind of tree could support a treehouse. And so we began to... to to put this treehouse together, and all of my kids were interested in the treehouse, but Collins in particular would just spend hours up there with me helping. <laughs> you know, he was six years old, and he was doing his best, but it was just so sweet. He always wanted to be with me, and I remember looking over one day, or one day when we were working, and he, he took a screw, and he was trying to hammer that screw into, into the board, and I said, hold on, buddy. Let me, let me show you a trick, and I, and I went over here, and I got the drill, and I, I got the screw, and zip, right in. And he looked at me with these big eyes and he said, Daddy, you are so smart. And I looked back at him and I said, you're right. But the truth is, I, it wasn't that I was like really smart or even all that handy. I just knew that like, I had these tools and I knew how to use them in a way that made me a little bit more effective at the task at hand. And honestly, it made the job more, more enjoyable because I had these tools and I knew how to use them. And I think that's a picture of what Jesus is, is doing here with the 12. He's given them these tools that we looked at last week. And as he sends the 12 out, he's telling them how they should go about using these tools. And so I know when we, when we talk about strategy in terms of Christian ministry, uh, I, I've talked with very well-meaning Christian brothers and sisters, people I've learned much from, and they would look at me and they say, Jim, there's no strategy. We pray, we share the gospel, and we leave the rest to God. And so certainly at some level, I, I agree with that and I appreciate it, but I think that's an overly simplified way of looking at, at Christian ministry. You know, certainly we see patterns of very well thought out and robust strategy when it comes to ministry in the Bible. Peter had a specific strategy. Paul had a specific strategy. And as we're going to see in this passage, Jesus has a strategy in the way that he sends out the 12. And I'll also be the first to say there's not a perfect one-to-one -one, uh, relationship between the way that Jesus sends out the 12 and the way that he sends us but I think there's significant overlap. So much overlap that we can learn a lot about how to use the tools that Jesus has given us. And if we do that, I think we will be both more effective in our, in our ministries and we're gonna enjoy it a lot more. So I wanna look at this passage and I just kind of wanna look at a few things that we can learn about the plan that Jesus gave the 12. And the first is who they should target. So Jesus is really clear about who they should and shouldn't share, the, share this message of the kingdom with. We see right off the bat that there are some people that he, they should and should not go to. Verse, verses 5 and 6. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So go to the house of Israel. Do not go to the Samaritans or Gentiles. 
You know, you read that and you're like, man, that's, why would Jesus not want his disciples to go to a certain people? And people have offered theories. Well, the, you know, the Samaritans, they had intermarried with the Babylonian captors and they were especially despised people. So Jesus didn't want them to go there. But that doesn't really line up at all because Jesus has already interacted with the Samaritan and, and he's interacted quite warmly with the Samaritan. And not only that, we these people who make that argument, I think, are missing the fact that the, the restriction, the prohibition, it isn't just on the Samaritans. It's also to any Gentiles. And then some people say, well, it's just it's purely a theological reason that, that Jesus is telling them to go to the Jews first to go, and, and then later to the Gentiles. And it has no real practical implication on our life. And other people would say, well, there's a theological reason, then there's a practical reason. And I think, really, at the end of the day... There's a theological reason, and when God designed something to operate in a certain way, it's immensely practical as it plays out. So I want to look at this. I want to see what, what is the theological reason that Jesus is sending them first to the Jews, and then why it's immensely practical both for them and for us. So why it's theological. It's theological because God chose to bless the world through one group of people the Israelites. And we see this going all the way back to Genesis chapter 22. God told Abraham, the father of the Jews, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So this thing, we can see that the promise is through the Jews. It's not for the Jews only. It's going to go through the Jews to the world. And we see this confirmed by Jesus in John chapter 4. Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And then it's confirmed by Paul when he writes to the Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The whole book of Acts that, Lord willing, we will start this fall is to show how this works, how the gospel started in Jerusalem with the Jews, then it went to Judea, Samaria, and then we get to see it spread all around the globe. So it makes sense, doesn't it? If, if the Jews are the people by which God is bringing this message of salvation to the world, doesn't it make sense that they would get to hear the, the fullness of this message in Jesus Christ and the coming of the kingdom of God first? It makes sense. There's a, there's a theological rationale here. But good theology is always practical. So there's a very practical nature of what's going on here too. In the words of the great expositor, Jim Boyce, it's practical because no one can do everything at once. You can't go and preach the gospel to everyone at once. We are limited in space and time. So we have to prioritize who we are going to go and share the gospel to. They, They were only 12 people. They only, you know, they only lived, 24 hours a day and they were sleeping a good portion of that they had to prioritize this thing so they went to the Jews first I think we can clearly see this was Paul's MO I mean he would go into a city and who would he go to first he would go to the synagogue he would go and preach to the Jews first before he went to the Gentiles and and maybe there was some some of the similar Jews first Gentiles later but I don't think we can overlook the fact that he was going to a group of people who already believed in the God of Israel they already had and understood the Old Testament they shared the same culture they shared the same language so it makes sense that that would be the place to start and it doesn't mean just because they 
just because they were prioritized that they were going to be more likely to, to believe. That's not what's going on here, but it makes sense because they share so many things. You can get to the heart of the gospel quicker. So when I go, when I, in every missions experience I've been a part of where there might have been a language barrier, I have always prioritized the people who speak English. It, it, just, it just makes sense. It doesn't mean because they speak English, they're going to be more likely to respond to the gospel, but it makes them a priority to me because I can share the gospel with more people and more clearly among those who speak English. So, how do we apply this in our context now, not a foreign ministry experience? I can think of a few ways. Uh, many of you are familiar with the ministry of Bridges. You know, Bridges, I think, has a very strategic approach to what they're doing. They want to reach international students when they're here. And, and Bridges, the people, those of you who are involved in Bridges here, that means at UCF, where literally the world has come here. The world has sent their best and their brightest. And you don't have to spend a lot of money to go around the world because they're here and they speak English. And they're at a season of their life, they're wanting to learn more about our culture. And in some cases, I've interacted with some students with Bridges who are extra interested in the gospel of Jesus Christ because their governments have so told them that they could not believe this thing. So that, that's just a strategic way that we're prioritizing certain people. But while I, I could identify a few strategic things that are going on through people in this church, there is one group of people that I think is in front of all of us. Increasingly, I have felt like God saying, these are your main people. And those people in front of all of us are the de-churched. You know, the de-churched means people who used to go to church and now for whatever reason don't go to church anymore. That's 45% of our city. 45% of our city used to go to church and doesn't anymore. So these are people who have some biblical foundation. They know by and large the claims of Jesus Christ. They know our culture and our language. That is the, the language and the culture of the church. They understand all these things. And as I look at this culture, they begin to look a lot like the Jews that Paul was going to first reach strategically because they had so much in common. And then what's really fascinating to me is that if Barna research is to be believed, and I, I think it is, 89% of this group of de-church people in our midst, 89% have made some commitment to Jesus Christ over the course of their life that is still important to them today. So many of these people would even call themselves Christians. Many of these people in a time of crisis would turn to a pastor. If there's one group that's right in front of us that makes a lot of sense to engage, I think it's the de-churched in our midst. So if that's true, if there is a strategic, not, not that we're going to avoid anybody, but if there is a strategic group that's in front of you, whoever it is, how then do we go and interact with them? Well... That's the next thing we see. Jesus tells his disciples how they should act as they go out on their ministry. So Jesus gives three analogies. He says they are to be sheep among wolves, they are to be shrewd as snakes, and they are to be innocent as doves. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I think, largely three things. And the first is that you need to be who you are. You're sheep. You don't need to try and be wolves. You don't need to change who you are. You are sheep, and you need to be okay being sheep, going out into a land of wolves. And I, you know, I was thinking this week, I don't think I would need to convince any evangelical that, um, 
things are changing in the Western world, that, that we as sheep have by and large had it pretty good for a couple, couple centuries. I mean, I think you could even make the argument that the sheep have been in charge for a while. And now we're, uh, we're moving into what probably you could call a more natural spiritual ecosystem where the wolves are in charge. <laughs> and I don't care what your political affiliation is. I think we're seeing that shift happen. If I'm honest, I'm, I think that one of the main pieces of the ministry God has called me to over the next, Lord willing, 20 or 25 years, one of the main parts of my ministry is going to be shepherding evangelicals who are processing the loss of power and influence in our society. I think that's going to be one of the main things I do over the next 20 to 25 years. But I think we can see this, even though it will be uncomfortable and difficult to some extent, we're returning to a more normal spiritual ecosystem because we're sheep and we're not supposed to desire the power and the abilities of the wolves. We're sheep who need to trust that our shepherd is going to protect us. I read a fascinating article this week about the, the change in, in our environment as evangelicals. The, the study was not done on Christians, just evangelicals, and how we process the loss of power and influence in our society. And they said they could predict largely how you're processing it based on where you live. And so the, the, the research was really well done. And the closer you are to the buckle of the Bible belt, which apparently is Mississippi, <laughs> The closer you are to the buckle of the Bible belt, the more fear you have about the changes that are going on around you. So if you live in Mississippi, in Arkansas, in Tennessee, Texas, and parts of Florida, you're at the higher end of the fear that you experience as we process this change, this maybe the the shift of power from sheep to wolves. What's interesting is if you live in Vermont or New Hampshire or Oregon or Maine, you're the least concerned about it. Because you've been living in that environment for some time. You understand what this is like, and you understand, I think, two things largely. First, the shepherd's going to take care of us. It doesn't matter if we have power in our culture or not. The shepherd's going to take care of us. And then secondly, people are reporting that they're seeing that they actually have more missional opportunities when they're sheep without power rather than sheep with power. And so it's interesting that people have already gone through this transition are the ones who are the least concerned about it. Now, I'm not saying we don't need to vote or stand up for what we think is right for this country. I'm very thankful to be in a country where we have a voice. But at the end of the day, our call as Christians is not to be in charge. Our call is to convert. And Jesus is saying, be who you are. You are sheep. You're going out among the wolves, but I'm going to protect you. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we are to understand our surroundings. So understanding that we are sheep protected by our shepherd, that's good, but it doesn't take away the reality that we really are around wolves and that there really is danger around us. And Jesus gives us a way to understand how to navigate our environment given we are sheep among wolves. And he says that we are to be shrewd as snakes and understand our surroundings. So I don't know about you, when I hear the word shrewd, that's not in the list of, you know, godly characteristics. It's hard, it's hard for me to hear. I can hear Jesus say, be innocent, but be shrewd, it just sounds un-Jesus-like. <laughs> it makes me appreciate the way the King James uh, translation has translated this, be wise as serpents. 
Okay, so I can, I can accept wise a little, a little easier than shrewd. But then those of us who have a more uh, robust, say, biblical theology, we hear the word serpent or snake, and we, our mind goes to Genesis 3, and we think it was a serpent who brought all this evil into the world. How could anything about being a serpent be good? Well, I think what Jesus is saying is serpents, snakes, they're subtle. They're subtle, and they bide their time. And when they strike, they're calculated, and they make it count. And if you want to go back to Genesis 3, you can see that the serpent was, was shrewd. He was able to come in and understand his surroundings and get to know the people he was after. He understood the woman's fears and desires, and he was able to come in and use his shrewdness, obviously, in the worst of ways. And Jesus is coming here and saying, we're to be shrewd, but a different, different kind of serpent. We're to be a better kind of serpent. We're to come in and bide our time and listen well and understand people, understand their, their desires and their hurts, their aspirations. We're to listen and understand a lot more than we talk so that when we strike for the glory of God, it will count. I think that's what Jesus is saying. And then thirdly, we are to be innocent as doves. Okay, this, this, this is a little easier to understand. Our motives should be clear. They should be straightforward. We're not deceiving anybody. We are not, uh, we're not bait and switching anybody. We're not sacrificing our godly character in any way as we go out onto the mission field. One, one commentator said, being innocent means what you see is what you get. That's what we want people to say about us. What you see is what you get. So with this in our minds... I want to I want to pull on this de-church thread just just a little more. What if we have this audience in front of us that we would say is strategic? How do we apply what Jesus is saying to that audience? And so I think the first way would just, would would be to get clear as to who this audience is. So we have this de-church category all around us. People with biblical knowledge and understanding of Jesus who for whatever reason aren't going to church. I think we should all try and identify people in our lives who fall into that category. I said this could be people in your neighborhood, in your workplace, uh, people in your gym. Gym and workplace are are my easiest access because all of my co-workers are annoyingly churched. But who are those people? And then begin to pray for them. Remember, this is one of the tools that, that Jesus gave us last week. Pray for those people. Pray for conversations. Pray for open doors with those people. Then, remember that the goal is to bring them back to Jesus and his church. So if we want to be wise as serpents, we want to bide our time. We want to understand why is it that they don't go to church anymore. Because I would say, if you don't know why it is that they don't go to church anymore, you don't need to invite them back to church yet. Because some people, they don't go to church anymore just because life got busy. And at some point along the way, more margin in their schedule became of more valuable to them than worship on Sundays. But for other people, you talk about church and there are deep wounds in their souls that they've not fully processed, that they've not healed from. And so if you come in, any of us come in and invite someone like that back to church without really understanding and listening, listening a whole lot more than we talk, then that invitation to come back to church, it's going to sound condescending, it's going to sound insensitive, and instead of, instead of speaking to them, we're going to speak right past them. 
So that could be a piece of what it looks like to be wise or shrewd as serpents when we have this audience. I think another part of being wise and innocent is helping the de-churched understand what it is that they've actually departed from. All right, what you're gonna, there's a word that we all in the church need to be very familiar with and it's deconstruction. So the word that a lot of them would use is, is deconstruction, which means this is, this is how I've, de- I've dismantled what I believe about Jesus and his church and this is where I am now. And deconstruction stories are unbelievably powerful. You know, most experts would say that a deconstruction story in our society has more power and more ability to spread throughout a culture than a conversion story does. But when you get to know these people, they actually, a lot of them, they haven't deconstructed Jesus. They've deconstructed their church experience. Those are really different things. And so maybe they've deconstructed all the lights and the sounds of a Broadway-level production church that cares more about occupied seats than nourished souls. Maybe they've deconstructed some form of Southern Christianity that cares more about decorum than truth, cares more about comfort than cross-bearing. Or maybe they've deconstructed some really heady church that doesn't seem to have the heart and the hands that they would want the church to have. And so wisdom says to come in here and not just beat them down, but affirm and praise, yes, you have deconstructed something that I don't think Jesus would even want to be a part of. And then help them, come alongside them to begin to do the heavy lifting of reconstructing what biblical Christianity and biblical church looks like. I think this is what it looks like to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And interestingly enough, we have a really good touch point coming up with the de-church part of our culture in April. And that touch point is Easter. There's there's one day a year that a lot of these people, they they won't go to church any other Sunday, but this Sunday they'll go to church. And so we, if, if we're going to be shrewd, we need to acknowledge that's a natural touch point that we have with people who would every other, any other Sunday not come to our church. And so as we think about what that looks like, I think there are at least two things for us to keep in mind. First, because on Easter Sunday we don't have equipping hour anyway, and because both the church and the de-church people generally have you know, big Easter lunches to get to, we're moving the time of our worship to 10 a.m. So instead of 10.45, 10 a.m., And then I think it would be a very good and reasonable challenge for us all to think about somebody who who is going to go to a church on that Sunday and maybe never does, any any other day goes to a church and invite them to this church. Not, Not because we want to have a big room on Sunday, but because we are passionate about seeing the de churched re churched. But none of this is possible without a deep walk with Jesus Christ, without really relying on him and his Holy Spirit to guide us through this process, to to empower us, where we want to see literally the miraculous and the impossible happen. And we're a little bit outside of our, our text here, but in verses 19 and 20, I think this is why Jesus says, when they deliver you over, Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So that's how we should act. And if it isn't already challenging enough, Jesus makes it a little bit more challenging by telling them, oh yeah, and by the way, when you go, you can't take any money or any protection. 
So how are they going to be supported? I think when we get to this, we have to be careful not to look at this as this universal, universal uh, prohibition on any kind of money or protection on the mission field. If you're doing ministry in China right now, I think you should probably be wearing a mask, and that would be just fine. We can see in Luke 22 that Jesus actually rever- he changed this prohibition. He, he reversed this prohibition to take into account the distance that his disciples would be traveling after his crucifixion and resurrection. Even so, I think there are two principles here by, by this prohibition that we can really understand in, as a part of Jesus' strategy that will help us as we go out and want to have ministries of our own. And the first principle is that wherever you are called, God will provide. Wherever it is that you're called, God will provide for you. So in the case of these disciples, they were called to these, these cities in Israel And they were totally dependent on these worthy people to provide their lodging, to provide their food. So basically, they're going out and they're totally dependent on people whose hearts are soft to the gospel and who are compassionate to strangers. I mean, this is not going to go well if God doesn't provide these kinds of people. But he does. And all of our calls are different. So it's, it's God, the Bible's not saying that God is always going to give you money and protection. He will give you money and protection based on your call. So for some of us, based on your call, you will need financial support and God will provide that. For others, you will need protection and God will provide that. For others yet, like Stephen, God will provide the grace to have neither. And to walk faithfully with him and glorify him through the absence of protection in the absence of support. But when I talk about this this area of specifically financial support, we as a church can't overlook the fact that it's often us that God uses to provide support to those who are out on this mission, who who give up their security of, of a job that's going to keep them financially sustained. In in the in the book of Third John, John is writing to Christians, talking about other Christians who are, who, who are giving up their financial security to go and share the gospel and plant churches. And John says, therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers, th- fellow workers for the truth. So as a church, we have a call to come alongside these people and support them. And it is that makes us, it's not a lesser job, that makes us a real part of the mission. I mean, if you look at Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans at its core was a support letter. Paul is very clear. He wanted to take the gospel west to Spain. And to do that, he needed a new sending church. And Rome was ideal for a lot of reasons, but Rome had one big problem. The Roman church was divided. They were a split church. And Paul knew that a divided church is not going to send well. So he writes them, and innocent as dove, he's very clear. You can't remain divided because I want this of you. And you can't do this well if you remain divided the way you are. So that's the first application. God will provide for your call. The second application, the second principle, is that the gospel must be offered for free. The gospel must be offered free of charge. This is why Jesus instructed them in verse 9, You received without paying, so give without pay. I raised support for about a decade. And if I can be totally honest, I'm very glad that I don't have to anymore. 
But that experience has made me both very thankful for those who do endure all the challenges of support raising, and it's instilled in me a deeper burden that the church needs to support those kinds of people. Uh, the gospel can never be a way of making money. We can never look at people, at the people we're trying to reach and see them as a source of income to line our pockets. So we, the church, we need to make financial decisions to be able to offer the gospel free of charge to anybody who might hear it. I mean, this is clearly in Paul's mind when he says to the Corinthians, what then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge. Church, we want the gospel to be offered free of charge. And that's gonna require different things based on different circumstances, but that's the guiding principle. So for some people, it's gonna mean that we're tent makers. We have what's called a normal job, and then we use that to finance our ministry. That was obviously what Paul did for a season in Corinth. But we can't say tent making, that's the way to do it because James and Peter arrived with money and then Paul was no longer a tent maker. He was freed up to do ministry full time. So it's gonna look different, but we as a church, we need to be dedicated to offering the gospel free of charge. Because if we ever look at the gospel as a money-making tool, then, then we have lost everything. And the people who do that, they will answer to God for what they've done. Then lastly, Jesus tells his disciples what they are to communicate. So they have their marching orders. Now they're told what it is that they're supposed to communicate as they march. Jesus said in verse seven, and proclaim as you go saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the hope that they should offer is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Some of your translations say the kingdom of heaven is near. So kingdom, this is a really important word to understand because it's used 126 times, as best I can tell, in the gospels. So when we hear the word kingdom, we need to hear two words, rule and reign. The kingdom is where God's rule and reign is undisputed and enjoyed. And it is God's spirit that, that changes our heart and calls us to really want his rule and his reign to be undisputed and enjoyed. This is the kingdom that we get to proclaim to other people. And we know that when this kingdom comes fully, when everything is fully under the rule and reign of God, the way it was designed to be, that there will be no pain, there will be no hurting, there will be no injustice, there will be no death. And we will get to experience all the joy of being in communion with our King the way we were designed to be. But I want us to think of the gospel as kingdom. Because I've said this before, but in, in our culture, if you go out and you ask people, what is the gospel? You know, what is the hope that we are to offer to other people? Often the answer is gonna be the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins, that's the Christian hope. Well, the forgiveness of sins contain, is contained in the Christian hope, but that's not the full of the Christian hope because that's the entry point. That's not the final destination. The Christian hope is the kingdom, being with the king in the kingdom. So imagine somebody came to you and gave you free annual passes to Disney. And you went around all year and you were telling everybody how excited you were about these, three, these, these free passes, annual passes to Disney, but you never thought about going to Disney. That's a picture of a gospel that's only the forgiveness of sins. That's not the full gospel. 
That's not what we are called to proclaim. And if I'm honest, it's not nearly as compelling. The forgiveness of sins is our ticket into the kingdom. Not the magic kingdom, the real kingdom. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And that's what Jesus is telling them to go out and communicate, to proclaim. And Jesus prepares them for the fact that some people are going to accept it and some people are going to reject it. Look at verses 11 through 15. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. And if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So these are hard words. When Jews would come back from traveling in that day, when they would step out of the Gentile kingdom and into the true kingdom, they would symbolically shake the dust from the Gentile land off their feet. And so what Jesus is saying is when you go out to these Jews and they do not receive the message of the kingdom, you are then to treat them like Gentiles. Even though God has chosen to work through Israel, he's not working only for Israel. God's God's favor is not based on any kind of ethnicity. God's favor is based on his choosing and it's confirmed in our faith. And so there's this tendency for people to say, yeah, the church is God's people, but, but the Jews are also God's people. You know, Israel, current Israel is still God's people. And the answer is yes, if they believe in Jesus. I mean, Jesus couldn't be more clear here. This is for everyone. And the church is built on the believing Jews. And in Paul's words, we're grafted in. But it's, it's the people of God are those who believe in Jesus. It, there's no ethnic bypass here. Jesus goes so far as to say it will be worse for them who hear about the kingdom than those in Sodom and Gomorrah. Because in Sodom and Gomorrah, they had a general Revelation, The general revelation, everything that you can discern from living in creation about God that leaves us all without excuse. Paul, in Romans 1, starting in verse 19, says exactly this. For what can be known about God is plain to them. This is, these are all unbelievers. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. That's Sodom and Gomorrah. They're without excuse. They have that general revelation. But what the Jews are receiving is something even more specific. It's the special revelation of Jesus Christ coming and ushering in the kingdom. And where you have more knowledge, you have more responsibility. So if we have higher knowledge and we reject it, the outcome is somehow worse. And I look at the G-Church community around us and that's what I see. A community of people who have biblical foundation, who understand the claims of Jesus Christ. And for whatever reason, it is not compelling enough for them to be a part of a local church. And that breaks my heart. And it makes me want to pursue them even more. When half of our town are those people. So can you see the strategy that Jesus employs? He doesn't just give us tools. He tells us how we should use these tools. He wants us to be effective and fruitful. And he wants us to enjoy the call that's placed on us. So he gives us these instructions. And I will be the first to say that proclaiming the kingdom can be scary. I mean, being sheep, going out into the land of the wolves to proclaim a truth that 
a good portion of them are not going to agree with and not like, that's scary. But that's the moment we need to remember that we have a good shepherd. A good shepherd who understands us. No one has given without pay more than Jesus. No one has been rejected the way that Jesus was. We're never going to experience that kind of rejection because in his rejection, we were accepted. And through his rejection, we received the Spirit of God to come in and align our hearts to his kingdom, to make us want his kingdom and thrive in his kingdom. And that shepherd will never leave us. He will never leave us and he will empower us on the mission that we're called to be a part of. So we go as sheep going out to the wolves to be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves to the glory of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you give us these tools. You give us everything we need for life and godliness. And we, we repent of the fact that we so often don't use these tools. We don't pursue these tools. And we pray that you would make us an effective missions outpost. That you, we would routinely see you using people in this church in miraculous ways to go out into the land of the wolves and bring them in as sheep. We know this is what you do because you've done it with us. And so we pray that you would send us well that you